Welcome to Paths to Recovery, a family, Al-Anon family group, 12 study. Let's go ahead and open with a moment of silence, followed by the opening prayer, please. Our Father, we come to you as a friend. You have said that where two or three are gathered together in your name, there you will be in the midst. We believe that you're here with us now. We believe this is something you will have us to do and that it has your blessing. We pledge with you always to be honest and search our hearts for weakness and errors that we may deserve your help. We believe that you want us to be real partners with you in this business of living, accepting our full responsibilities and certain that the rewards will be freedom, growth, and happiness. For this, we are grateful. We ask you at all times to guide us, help us daily to come closer to you, and grant us new ways of living our gratitude. Amen. Meeting welcome. The Elanon welcome. We welcome you to this Elanon family group meeting and hope you will find in this fellowship the help and friendship we have been privileged to enjoy. We who live or have lived with the problem of alcoholism understand, as perhaps few others can. We too were lonely and frustrated, but in Elanon we discover that no situation is really hopeless and that it is possible for us to find contentment and even happiness whether the alcoholic is still drinking or not. We urge you to try our program. It has helped many of us find solutions that lead to serenity. So much depends on our own attitudes. And as we learn to place our problems in its true perspective, we find it loses its power to dominate our thoughts and our lives. The family situation is bound to improve as we apply the Allen ideas. Without such spiritual help, living with an alcoholic is too much for most of us. Our thinking becomes distorted by trying to force solutions, and we become irritable and unreasonable without knowing it. The Al-Anon program is based on the suggested 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, which we try little by little, one day at a time, to apply to our lives along with our slogans and the serenity prayer. The loving interchange of help among members and daily reading of Elon literature thus makes us ready to receive the priceless gift of serenity. Elon is an anonymous fellowship. Everything that is said here in the group meeting and member to member must be held in confidence. Only in this way can we feel free to say what's in our minds and in our hearts, for this is how we help one another in Elon. Reading of the 12 Steps of Elanon. 1. We admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. 2. Came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. 3. Made a decision to turn our will and our life over to the care of God as we understood Him. 4. Made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. 5. Admitted to God, to ourself, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. 6. We're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. 7. Humbly ask Him to remove our shortcomings. 8. Made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. 9. Made direct amends to such people wherever possible except when to do so would injure them or others. 10. Continue to take personal inventory and when we were wrong, promptly admitting it. 11. 
sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood Him, praying only for knowledge of His will for us and the power to carry that out. 12. Having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we try to carry this message to alcoholics and to practice these principles in all our affairs. And now a reading of the 12 traditions. One, our common welfare should come first. Personal progress for the greatest number depends on unity. Two, for a group purpose, there is but one authority, a loving God, as he may express himself in our group conscience. Our leaders are but trusted servants. They do not govern. Three, the relatives of alcoholics, when gathered together for mutual aid, may call themselves an Al-Nam family group, provided that, as a group, they have no other affiliation. The only requirement for membership is that there be a problem of alcoholism in a relative or a friend. Four, each group should be autonomous except in matters affecting another group or Elnon or AA as a whole. Five, each Elnon family group has but one purpose, to help families of alcoholics. We do this by practicing the 12 steps of AA ourselves, by encouraging and understanding our alcoholic relatives, and by welcoming and giving comfort to families of alcoholics. Six, our family groups ought never endorse, finance, or land our name to any outside enterprise, lest problems of money, property, and prestige divert us from our primary spiritual aim. Although a separate entity, we should always cooperate with Alcoholics Anonymous. Seven, Every group ought to be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions. A L non twelve-step work should remain forever non-professional, but our service centers may employ special workers. Nine, our groups as such ought never be organized, but we may create service boards or committees directly responsible to those they serve. Ten, the L non family groups have no opinion on outside issues, hence our name ought never be drawn into public controversy. 11. Our public relations policy is based on attraction rather than promotion. We need always to maintain personal anonymity at the level of press, radio, TV, and films. We need guard with special care the anonymity of all AA members. 12. Anonymity is the spiritual foundation of all our traditions. Every reminder us to place principles above personalities. Amen. <laughs> I love I love the readings of Elnon literature. Put my life together. I'm Fernando. I am a grateful member of the Elnon program, a double winner. Now we're going to read a choice of one of the following. Open letter from an alcoholic, understanding alcoholism, or understanding ourselves, or do's and don'ts. Let's go ahead and understanding alcoholism. Let's do that letter, please. Here we go. Where'd it go? What is alcoholism? The American Medical Association recognizes alcoholism as a disease that can be arrested but not cured. One of the symptoms is an uncontrollable desire to drink. Alcoholism is a progressive illness. As long as alcoholics continue to drink, there's Their drive to drink will get worse, if not dealt with. The disease can result in insanity or death. 
The only method of arresting alcoholism is total abstinence. Most authorities agree that even after years of sobriety, alcoholics can never drink again because alcoholism is a lifetime disease. There are many successful treatments for alcoholism today. Alcoholics Anonymous is the best known and widely regarded as the most effective. Alcoholism is no longer a hopeless condition. It is a recognized and treated. It is. Who are alcoholics? All kinds of people are alcoholics, people from all walks of life. Only a small percentage of alcoholics fit the story, stereotype of derelict or bum, panhandling on the streets. Most alcoholics appear to be functioning fair, very, fairly well, but their drinking affects some part of their lives. Their family life, their social life, or their work may suffer. It may be all three. Alcoholics are people who drink whose drinking causes a continued and growing problem in any area of their lives. Why do alcoholics drink? Alcoholics drink because they think they have to. They use alcohol as a crutch and an escape. They are in emotional pain and use alcohol to kill that pain. Eventually, they depend on alcohol so much that they become convinced they can live without it. This is the obsession. When some alcoholics try to do without alcohol, the withdrawal symptoms are so overwhelming that they go right back to drinking because drinking seems to be the only way to get rid of the agony. That is the addiction. Most alcoholics would like to be social drinkers. They spend a lot of time and effort trying to control their drinking so that they will be able to drink like other people. They may try drinking on weekends or drinking only a certain, a certain drink, but they can never be sure of being able to stop drinking when they want. They end up getting drunk even when they promise themselves they wouldn't. That is compulsion. It is the nature of this disease that alcoholics do not believe they are ill. This is denial. Hope for recovery lies in their ability to recognize a need for help, their desire to stop drinking, and their willingness to admit that they cannot cope with the problems themselves. This was taken from Alting Hope for Children of Alcoholism, Understanding Alcoholism. Very good. Very good readings. Are there any newcomers out there listening in their first 30 days? This is our welcome to the newcomers. We welcome you. Hang on. Where'd it go? Newcomers welcome. As a newcomer, you may feel that you're here tonight for the alcoholic, that your presence here may teach you how to stop his or her drinking. The truth is you're here because of the alcoholic and not for the alcoholic. You will soon learn that you did not cause the alcoholic to drink. You cannot control the drinking, nor can you cure the alcoholic. You are here for yourself. You and you alone are responsible for dealing with your own pain. This is your program. It is your recovery from the effects of the disease of alcoholism. You will find love, understanding, and a lot of hope from the Alnam family group. The people around you tonight are experiencing, in varying degrees, the hurts, the anger, and the anxiety that you are experiencing. We in Al-Anon share our experiences because it helps us to focus on ourselves and our recovery. We do this with the use of the Al-Anon tools of the program, steps, slogans, literature, which will all be provided to you. 
Alanon will work for you if you allow it to. It's as effective as you make it. It's the safe place, the right place to be. Feel free to ask any questions, or you may feel more comfortable just listening. That's fine, too. There are no musts in Elnon. Finally, what you say or hear here and who you see here stays in this room. Your anonymity is protected at all times. And now we will go around the room and introduce ourselves by first name only. Like I said, I'm Fernando, and I am a grateful member of Elnon. Now we'll get a volunteer to read the three obstacles to success in Elnon. Three obstacles. All Elnon discussions should be constructive, helpful, loving, and understanding. In striving towards these ideas, we avoid topics that can lead to dissension and distract us from our goals. One, discussion of religion. Elnon is not allied with any sect or denomination. It is a spiritual program based on no particular form of religion. Everyone is welcome no matter what affiliation or none. Let us not defeat our purpose by entering into discussions concerning specific religious beliefs. Two, gossip. We meet to help ourselves and others learn and use the Elnon philosophy. In such groups, gossip can have no part. We do not discuss members or others, and particularly not the alcoholic. Our dedication to anonymity gives people confidence in Elon. Careless repeating of matters heard at meetings can defeat the very purpose for which we are joined together. 3. Dominance. Our leaders are trusted servants. They do not govern. No member of Elon should direct, assume authority, or give advice. Our program is based on suggestions, interchange of experience, and rotation of leadership. We progress in our own way and pace. Any attempt to manage or direct is likely to have disastrous consequences for group harmony. And for that, thank you very much. Today we're going to be discussing our do's and don'ts. A very famous reading in Elna. And if you're new, this is what to expect if you go to an Elna meeting. This kind of reading, this is just the the foundation of getting the meeting started. Now we will discuss a piece of our literature, the do's and don'ts. Do forgive. Do be honest with yourself. Do be humble. Do take it easy. Tension is harmful. Do play. Find recreations and hobbies. Do keep on doing your best even when you fail. Do learn the facts about alcoholism. Do attend Elna meetings often. Do pray. Don't be self-righteous. Don't dominate, nag, scold, or complain. Don't lose your temper. Don't try to push anyone but yourself. Don't keep bringing up the past or keep checking up on the alcoholic. Don't wallow in self-pity. Don't make threats you don't intend to carry out. Don't be overprotective. Don't be a doormat. That's our do's and don'ts of Elon. And we usually have, we ask for secretary announcements and then literature report. You can buy the, the book here, the literature of Elon at the meetings. And we have a treasurer report. 
And we have no dues or fees in Elnam, but we do pass the basket to cover group expenses like rent, more purchase of literature to have it available, uh, to support any trusted service and Elnam service arms. Our seventh tradition says we are self-supporting through our own voluntary contributions. Through a group conscience, there's usually no cross-talking in a meeting. Cross-talking is defined as commending on one another's person's share or a side conversation with your neighbor. In a meeting, it's usually a continuing 12-step study meeting. They usually continue on the book called Paths to Recovery. Uh, they would usually read, and there's some questions in that book. We ask you to uh, tackle two or three questions at a time and give you 20 minutes of silence. And we usually uh, read them and write about them and then discuss them in the group level. That's called a writing meeting, which is highly recommended uh, because it's just you one-on-one -on -one with your higher power, with God, and you get to talk over the uh, the questions it's powerful in a group setting i highly recommend it well thank you very much for coming in today we're going to 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 the elanon uh discussion and views how we we do it in elanon so i'm going to go ahead and read our last goodbye page i believe it's the closing statement it says, in closing, I would like to say that the opinions expressed here were strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you like and leave the rest. The things you heard were spoken in confidence and should be treated as confidential. Keep them within the walls of this room and the confines of your mind. A few special words to those of you who haven't been with us long. Whatever your problems, there are those among us who have had them too. If you try to keep an open mind, you will find help. You will come to realize that there is no situation too difficult to be better and no unhappiness too great to be lessened. We aren't perfect. The welcome we give you may not show the warmth we have in our hearts for you. After a while, you'll discover that though you may not like all of us, you'll love us in a very special way, the same way we already love you. Talk to each other, reason things out with someone else, but let there be no gossip or criticism of one another. Instead, let the understanding, love, and peace of the program grow in you one day at a time. Will all who care to join me in the closing with the serenity prayer? God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Keep coming back. It works if you work it. Greetings, everyone. I'm Fernando. I am your secretary for this meeting. Let us open this meeting with a moment of silence, followed by the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change the courage to change the things i can and the wisdom to know the difference amen i want to bring to your attention um a scripture in proverbs 3 verses 5 and 6 
Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways and acknowledge him and he shall direct your path. That was pretty hard to understand for me. It says, how can I not work with my understanding? Uh, why do I, how do I know when I'm running in God's understanding? How do I know he's directing my paths? Hmm. Well, the answer just came to me. The fact is, when I get on my knees and I thrust my heart into the Lord and ask and seek his ways, acknowledge him in all my ways, he shall direct my path. Well, I will feel the zeal of the Lord. I have felt the zeal of the Lord. I have felt uh, productivity, uh, rhythm, when the Lord is, is in guidance and empowering His uh, His will. One of the ways I used to know the will of God is when I was working a lot of hours and I would pray the Our Father in desperation because I didn't sleep enough and I had to go back and drive semi and drive truck and deliver milk, bread, cheese, meat, produce to the stores in Northern California. And the power of God will come and, and help me. And I'd be so busy delivering so much. And finally, about 2 o'clock in the morning, excuse me, in the afternoon, I would look up to heaven. I said, okay, that's enough. Turn the power off. Let's calm this thing down. Because the zeal of the Lord had taken over. And it was God's will that I deliver bread, milk, meat, and so forth to his kids. I believe the power of God hits us when, we, when first of all, we, we are under His will in a service-oriented task. Okay? Uh, we, we're getting paid, yes, but we're doing a service for the community, a valuable service for the community. One of the service works I have for my community, now that I'm retired and I don't no longer drive semi, I willingly... Uh, take the books to a meeting at the park willingly I do two meetings back to back one 12 steps AA and one Alnon and the Alnon uh, I started it and there's, there were seven people there today and we every every uh, every week we hit on two steps and write on questions from a workbook, which is a very intelligent approach. And the words are already um, measured out by seasoned people. And extremely, the Pathway to Recovery workbook in Elon, we're using that, and I'm getting a big kick out of concentrated effort. And... And going deep and going long. On the other one, on the 12-step program, we read from the 12 and 12. And we read, today we read the Tradition 7, which states that, uh, you know, for our, we are self-contributing through our own contributions. And that helps us to grow up. Makes a lot of fun when you go out to eat. And the waitress says, there's seven of you. And you all want seven different tickets? And I say, yeah. 
You're going to get tipped seven different ways. <laughs> so, uh, yep. I like it. I like the program. I love the program. It gives me busy now that I'm, you know, basically tomorrow, for instance, I buy donuts, I take coffee to the meetings, and in addition to that, we I make pancakes. Uh, it's my job now to make pancakes since the wife went to go help her parents cook and clean their house and stuff. She'll be gone for a few weeks. And in the evening, we have to chop up onions and tomatoes and lettuces and stuff and take the podium, speaker, and all the, the equipment back to the park to have a night meeting. In the morning, about 25 people show up for breakfast. Only about two-thirds eat when they do show up. And then the uh, in the evening, everybody eats. We go through about 30 hamburgers and about 20 hot dogs and a lot of side dishes and we have a speaker it's pretty cool it's pretty nice so getting back to this verse that says trust in the lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding in all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your path so you know what i'm leading to you know what i'm going to I always say the same thing in a different approach. In all your ways, in all your ways, acknowledge him. Even in my hiccups, even in my gambling, even in my smoking cigars, even in my judgmental, criticizing, condemning, murmuring, and complaining, even in my big mouth that I'm saying the wrong things, I'm cruel. <laughs> How many of us are cruel? Yeah, we're just, it's our lower nature to be cruel, to be, you know, to, there's some of us that are gifted and are not cruel because they made a choice and God has blessed them, but a lot of other of us, we have to work hard on it. Like I have to work hard on it. I got to read First John 1 through 5 when I'm getting too cruel and I'm not responding properly. Sometimes the pressure is just too much and I respond with self-pity or I become cruel. So that's where I need to read more and especially the Gospels where it gives me pure love. Pure love from reading 1 John 1 through 5. It mentions the love of God 45 to 48 times depending on what translation. It mentions the word that he is light, the source of light, about seven or 15 times. I can't remember exactly what number is that. Uh, so he, the Lord is, uh, he's all over us, guys. So we acknowledge him in all our ways. I thank God I'm a misfit when I mess up. I thank God I don't have a new pickup truck. I thank God I'm not going to England to to go to meetings. So I just give hints, you know, where my goals I like to be. I thank God for all things. I thank God when I mess up. 
So that's the point I'm making. I'm acknowledging God in all my ways. What's the other part? Let's say, for instance, the reason I'm talking like this is because I had a sponsee that was uh, three weeks sober. He went to court. They took the kids away. and Anyway, he just takes me today. He said, I let you get down. And I've been telling him to acknowledge God in all his ways. And as I was trying to explain to him, telling him that we don't have God has no recourse than to get out of the way and let my own actions and ways uh, start to destroy me. Uh, either alcohol or my mouth or just, you know, get out of the insurance uh, canopy by not acknowledging God. If I was a do, doing the good things, I'd say, thank you, God. Uh, I can be better. Thank you, God. I get to do a good thing. And if I'm not doing a good thing, I can say, I thank you, God. I'm not doing a good thing. That requires guts, folks. That requires a man or a woman to say to God, I thank you, God. I am not doing the right things. You know, you're still going to be in the uh, in the favorable side because you have acknowledged the Lord respectfully and truthfully and courageously. And you went forward to say, and these, these people that admit they're wrong, they admit, they, they, that's courage to me. That's really, that's the point where the person is not hiding in shame, is not enveloped in remorse, morbid reflection. Um, it's a great cleaner. The Lord is trying to clean my pride, my ego. And this is the best way. When I mess up, I confess. Thank you, God, I'm a mess up. I thank you, God, I I got ridiculed. I thank you, God, I got challenged. I thank you, God. Amen. Um, and sticking up for my recovery and my time and working with people and working with others, people that are really need of the program and getting my rest properly. If the Lord said, if you're not with me, you are against me. God says, if you're not with me, you're against me. So even if, say for instance, I'm gambling my money away, I am still with the Lord if I am admitting it because hope is alive and I'm using my faith and my belief that there is a God and that there's hope for me. I am being honest with the Lord. So what is the Lord going to do? He's going to send me help. I'll give you an illustration. I had another friend that was vaping. He was vaping in the, in the meetings here and there. He went from smoking to vaping, and he said he's spending about $35, $40 a week vaping. So I told him, I asked him, I said, can you commit to thanking God every time you vape? And he looked at me, and he, we did this practice when he didn't have a job, and he got a job. And he goes, sure. So he started doing it, and he said, best thing that ever happened to me, to thank God that I'm vaping. He goes, the desire went away. The desire to be killing yourself went away, and he saved the money. And he's the one that when I needed a television, my TV was going out, he went out and bought me one. 
I got, you know, it wasn't new, mind you, but it was new to me. And I'm constantly getting, um, constantly getting good, good things coming to me. I always wanted a ladder. I got a big ladder. I got three ladders now. And I'm going to cut the hedges on my tree. And I needed a saw. And uh, just a guy gave me a ladder and a saw. Exactly what I desired. Um, So I have a lot of hope chest. A lot of things. So, all right, that's enough. I'm running out of words. I just want to say, may the Lord bless you and keep you. And make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The speaking of good words and saying yes and amen and agreeing with them, you get to receive them and make them your own. So let's go ahead and pray out with our Father, but let's change the Our Father a little bit. Let us mention the words love, thy love come, thy kingdom come. Give us today our daily love instead of bread. Okay? Let's try that. Here we go. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy love come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily love, and forgive us of our wrongs as we forgive those who are wrong against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Keep coming back, family. It's working. That's not normal shit. So I finally broke away from home with these dreams and aspirations. All of a sudden, I don't know where it came from, I wanted to prove everybody wrong because, you see, I heard them whispering about me. I, I hung around the screen doors at night and listened to them play dominoes and talk about me. I was a little bastard without a dad. And I might, was going to end up just a little street bum. He ain't going to be worth a damn. You see, I heard them talking about me. And I walk and I cry and I said, you know, what do you, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do, do this and I'm going to do that. And I cry. And, and I had things to do. I had to prove everybody wrong. So I had these dreams. And every one of them came true. I just didn't know what to do with the dream when it came true. They say, be careful what you pray for. God, let me win the lottery! <laughs> What is it, six million tonight? I left home and, and, and I went to Oklahoma to live with my grandmother. Daddy Mae Higgins. And from there I had I had kind of kind of flunked out of high school. Well, six Fs. Does that qualify? I think that that'll give it. Six Fs. So Throughout my junior and senior year in high school, I had to go to night school, Sunday school, makeup school, give me a credit school, wherever they were having school, I was at it. 
And, and I finished with my class. Now, I can't tell you where I got that energy or that determination. I just wanted to finish with my class. And I finished high school in 1971. I was not recruited highly by football teams around the country. Uh, I was smoking marijuana on a daily basis. I had only been drunk once or twice in my life by the age of 18. I had had wild trips on orange sunshine. And you know, i got to tell you tonight, I smoked marijuana for 15 years and I don't even like it, never did like it. I mean, the only thing marijuana ever did for me was make me eat a family-sized bag of Oreos. Ding-dongs or Doritos or four or five cheeseburgers, red eyes. Every day, every morning. I ended up walking on a small college in Oklahoma called Langston and I showed up on Wednesday and I was starting linebacker on, on Saturday. And I went on for four years, made All-America, consensus All-America, three years. And one of my dreams came true. Well, my first dream was to be All-America. Well, I made All-America my sophomore year. And then I, well, I wanted to make AP All-America. See, I made NAIA All-America. I wanted to be on the big boys All-America. Well, that happened too. Me and Two Tall Jones were the all-American defensive end in 1973. It's really a sad story. I told you my dream came true. And then I wanted to get drafted to the NFL. Well, I not only got drafted, I got drafted in the first round. The Dallas Cowboys. I left home at 15 from a dysfunctional surrounding. At 21, I was in Super Bowl 10. Six years. Just six years removed from this dysfunctional shit. I'm in the Super Bowl where a guy is flipping a 200-year-old coin because, you see, America was 200 years old. And he's flipping that coin. And my little street head, I'm thinking, hey, man, I'd sure like to have that coin, man. <laughs> That go pretty good with my 1903 dime. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you like me, you know, I mean, you know, we save coins and like, oh, this is 1927, you know, a 200-year-old coin. Nothing had changed inside my head and my body. You know, I, I was a Southern Baptist, and um, I was baptized a Christian at six years old. And, you know, I never stopped being a Christian. I never stopped being a man who believed in Jesus Christ. That's just my belief. I'm not promoting anything here. Yeah, but I just didn't live that lifestyle because I didn't know how to live their deal because, you see, they told me what to believe and how to believe it. I, I believed in the concept of God, but I didn't like the way they were teaching it to me. So I stayed away from those people. You see, when I got to the NFL, I didn't know how to live. I had too much money. I was too crazy, too young, and I didn't have any idea of how to live. 
You see, because I grew up in a house where we moved about 12 times. There was never no home. They never owned a home, so they moved a lot. So consequently, when I got money, matter of fact, when I got drafted in the NFL, I did what most players do. I bought a new car and a stereo system. Of course, I didn't have nowhere to park it or plug it in, but I bought it. During Super Bowl X in Miami, Florida, 1975, I was a young, impressionable young man who didn't know how to live, but I was just checking it out. What, what's up? What's, what's happening? So I go to a club. Joe Namath owns the club, and there's the Temptations and the Pointer Sisters and, and all these stars. And I sat on the front row of the Western Pointer Sisters show, and I kind of knew, you know. I said, I want one of y'all. Which one? Uh, which one? Let's see. Oh, let's see. She's, ooh. It was four of them then. <laughs> but one of the things happened to me then was I met something that, that I would abuse for the next seven, eight years, and that was cocaine. See, the first time I did cocaine, it, it, it filled all the holes. It made me all that I wanted to be. The thing about cocaine, it fixed me right now. There was no waiting. And I liked that. I liked cocaine when I first snorted it. I wish I could stand up here tonight and tell the newcomer that it was all bad, but no, it wasn't all bad. It got bad real quick, but I hung in there. <laughs> I played for a man named Tom Landry. Ballhead fella, first cousin of God. And he's one of them holier than thou kind of people. And I resented everything about Tom Landry because he had everything I wanted. See, he had a wife and a family. He owned a home. He had children that loved him. He had a great job. He had Christianity. He had a high power. He had faith. And I had none of it. I have not no part of it. And so I didn't like him, but I didn't have what he had. And I despised what he had because I couldn't figure out why I didn't have it. But I didn't want it. You get that? That's just like an addict, ain't it? So all of my problems and disagreements with Tom Landry were because I resented what he had, all that he had that was good that I didn't have. I didn't have a father. And in 1975, I met that guy who made me. After 21 years, this man had never looked me up, had never called, had never sent a Christmas card, had never sent a tricycle or a truck 
or nothing. He came into my life, son! I was a cowboy now, see. And of course, as sick as that was, and immediately I knew that me and my father, I, I know I didn't like him very much because the first thing we did together was smoke pot. And we smoked pot on his brother's grave who had been hit in the head with a brick in New York on a dope deal. My next few years in the National Football League were spent snorting cocaine. By the age 25, I had played in three Super Bowls. We had won Super Bowl 12. I had friends like Richard Pryor and Marvin Gaye and, and the list goes on. People who I call beautiful people. One thing we all had in common is we abused cocaine. And I'm not breaking anybody's anonymity. Everybody knows that already. By age 25, 10 years removed from that dysfunctional place in Austin. Because I haven't come from anywhere but a dysfunctional place, and I haven't found out how to live yet. Maybe you might know how I feel if you're sitting here tonight that you didn't know how to live until you got here and heard how other people were living. Because your parents had done the best thing they knew to do. My mother and father passed on to me what was passed on to them. I forgive them. I don't have no adult children with alcoholic issues. Every issue I got, I can take care of in the 12 steps of this program. Because if I get to go on all them programs, see, it'd be, I'd be 24 hours a day in everything. Because I'm a little bit of everything. Ain't nothing these 12 steps can't work out, I don't believe. If there's something that can't work out, I don't want it. <laughs> I don't want it. Five years as a Dallas Cowboy, my life got out of control. My life got, as we say in these rooms, unmanageable. I think Bill Cosby said it best, said, you know, oh yeah, uh, cocaine enhanced my personality. So what if you're an asshole? Well, I was an asshole. It, it enhanced my assholeism. You see, I have friends today, and, and I didn't have friends back then. I, I just had people who liked me because of the cocaine I had, or because I was Hollywood Henderson, or because I was a Dallas Cowboy. Something beside the true sense of friendship. You know, because my friends back then, you ever had friends like this? Yeah, my friends would steal my dope and help me look for it. You, you back? Thanksgiving 1979, Tom Landry had had enough of my antics. 
because they didn't know who was coming to work the next day. See, by now my nose was completely torn up. I had snorted so much cocaine that the middle of my nose is gone. Bye-bye, see you later. I built a shower in my home that cost me several thousand dollars, a steam room for my nose, because this thing in the middle of my nose would come out ever so often. And I would have to, you know, put salt water and water and mix inhalers and all this shit in my nose, man, just to maintain it, you know? It became maintenance. I, I quit enjoying cocaine after a while and it became an addictive trip to keep my nose from hurting, to keep the tears from welling in my eyes because I destroyed the septum in the middle of my nose. About once a week I would get in my shower and as blood ran down my chest, across my belly button, into my pubic hairs, from the gush out of my nose. I would blow my nose very hard to the wall in my shower, blood splatting on the wall. And this thing would come out and hit the wall and slide down into the tub. And if it had, had legs, it had crawled off. That is uh, called a booger. And it was according to how long it had been in there, whether I picked it up and ate it or not. Because I have blown, I have blown my nose so many nights and said, that's 40 bucks. I'm here to tell you the truth. I'm not here to tell you what you want to hear. I have also, I have boogers under people's couches today. I have rubbed boogers in people's carpets. cocaine. He was trying to be nice to me. Thomas, this is the toughest thing I've ever had to do. He said, I've never let a player go the 12th game of the season. He said, but I do not know what to do with you. And I sat back across from him and said, I don't know what to do with you either. Excuse me. I, I was so addicted at that time uh, that it didn't matter what he did. I was addicted to cocaine. Those of you who are here tonight know what I'm talking about when I say I was addicted to cocaine. It had done me pretty bad, and I was feeling awfully bad, but, you know, 
it's that lonely place that gets us here, I believe, that we want to quit but we don't know how. That dilemma hits us right between the eyes. And we say we're not going to do it again, and we do it again. That's the loneliest place I've ever been, is wanting to quit not knowing how. So he fired me. And of course, being the cocaine addict I was at the time, I said, oh, excuse me, you can't fire me, I quit. I retire. So I officially retired from pro football at 26 years old. Well, it wasn't but two weeks passed, I started thinking, oh shit, I'm snorting all this coke, I need money. I said, I want to come back. And they said, too late. So I was out for the rest of the year, but I got paid. Several people came to see me during that four weeks before the year ended in Dallas. They met me in parking lots like, it's, like they were from the mafia, and they parked their car across the parking lot, and, and I meet them in the middle of the parking lot, and I stand there, and these were high officials in the cowboy organization, and they would say to me, you know, Thomas, it's, it's out that, that you're, you're doing it, and you need to do something about it. And I go, well, man, I don't know where you get that information from, but yeah, it ain't true. <laughs> and uh, they would go back to their car, and I would get back in my car, and I would cry. I would cry because I was hurting real bad. And I knew they were right, but I knew I couldn't quit. I didn't, how, how am I going to quit? They, they made it sound so simple, like, you got to quit. I didn't know how to quit, and I didn't know where this room was. So that year ended, and I did not quit. And I got traded to the San Francisco 49ers. Nobody told Bill Walsh he was getting a cocaine addict up in San Francisco. So I showed up in San Francisco, they gave me a bunch of money, and I, I went out in free base for about whole five, six days and came to work, came to the training camp, uh, and I had my helmet on all strapped to my chin and my shoulder pads and my knees and everything and my shoes, number 50 in San Francisco, and I it was on the ground. I stretched my hamstring, then I laid back and stretched my, my, my quad, and, and then I went to sleep. <laughs> probably one of the only football players in the history of the game uh, go to sleep in the middle of practice. Well, they released me the next day. And, and of course, they traded me to the Houston Oilers. But nobody told Bum Phillips he was getting a cocaine addict. So I practiced about 20 minutes and said, oh, my leg is hurting. And, and I was on injury reserve for 11 weeks, and, and they paid me $150,000 just to, you know, go in and get ice on the back of my leg and I go free base. I didn't tell you how I started free base, and I don't need to tell you. You know, wherever there's coke to be snorted, there's coke to be based. But after 1980, the pain got too bad. I was just hurting. My life was unmanageable. I was spending thousands of dollars. I was alone because I was using alone. I had a dozer. I was getting my dogs fucked up. 
my roommate, Too Tall Jones, he, he, he moved away from me. I was alone, and I didn't know why I was alone, because you know why I was alone? Nobody did it like I did it. I had nobody who did it like I did it. People used to leave me in motel rooms, and, and while they were closing the door, they looked back and say, hey man, you're going to die. I don't understand people who leave the door. I don't understand that. That was good. So in January 1981, I called uh, Pete Roselle and I said, Pete, I'm a coke addict. This cocaine is about to kill me. And I'm addicted to this stuff. Will you give me some help? So they sent me to treatment in Arizona. Went over to a place there called Camelback Hospital. Stayed 60 days. Had nose surgery. Fixed my nose. I was sure this program was going to fix me. And, and I felt fixed. You know, I, I, I drank beer and everything through the program, but I didn't think that meant anything. I remember a friend of mine coming to get me out of treatment. He drove my car over from Dallas. I had a black Mercedes Benz, smoke windows, sunroof, the whole deal. And, and uh, we started across the desert, headed back to Texas. And I rented my glove compartment. I just got out of treatment, 64 days, good treatment, good intense treatment for cocaine addiction. And I rolled me a big fat joint, and I looked at my friend, lit it up, I said, Yeah, I think this program's gonna work. <laughs> I was back to cocaine in, in, within hours. By the time I got to Dallas, 24 hours, I was back on coke. And it was downhill from there. By February 1982, I was broke, homeless. I spent everything. I lost the Super Bowl rings. Everything was gone because I give it, I give it away to cocaine. And I had the same thing going out of football that I had going in. A car and a stereo system. With nowhere to park it and nowhere to plug it in. Nineteen eighty two I became an alcoholic because it was cheaper. <laughs> I started drinking sangaree and tonic. Eighty three I moved to California, Long Beach, California. If you read my book or read the newspaper, you know that I was charged with sexual misconduct. Said I had sex with a fifteen year old girl while we pre based cocaine. It's true. I had nothing to do with anybody who was disabled or that deal. What was true was enough. And it was my emotional bottom. It was my spot. So I was ready to go on home. I was ready to go ahead and leave this place because I had fallen too far to ever lift my head again. What is Thomas Anderson going to do now? So I wanted to kill myself. And the only reason I didn't kill myself is because I was afraid I'd be successful at it. The doctor told me that suicide was a permanent solution for a temporary problem. He told me I could get over anything. 
I went into treatment in November 1983 at the care unit in Orange, California. I was facing jail, prison, humiliation, moral charges. What, what really happened was bad enough, but to add all the other little things on top of it were a little embarrassing. And it still is a little embarrassing because if you hear it from me, I'll tell you that when I freebased cocaine, I didn't care what was going on. Sex was part of my deal. And if you anything like me, sex is part of your deal. And anybody freebasing cocaine, that whole arena is slavery. You do what you got to do to get a hit, don't you? I did. I went into treatment. And I didn't think I was going to make it. My first few days in the program, I heard people saying they had five, six years. They were, it was an Alcoholics Anonymous. I went to a Cocaine Anonymous meeting in Newport Beach, California, on 32nd Street, the first meeting in Orange County. And that's my home group. You see, this past November 8th, I celebrated five years clean and sober. treatment for 42 days. Then I went to another treatment program for 60 days. And in that seven months, because after I left the other program, I moved to Laguna Beach, I moved into a house where I had a little room. I had a car. But, you know, I'm going to show you how it works in, this, in these rooms. See, nobody asked me for my autograph when I first got sober. I was a little concerned with that. But one of my first vehicles was a little Datsun 210. Now, to show you how it was, the car was worth, I paid $200 for it, and I owed on it. <laughs> I'm making payments on a $200 note, you know. But one thing I did, I went to meetings three, sometimes four times a day for seven months. I went to over 500 meetings. It was my job to stay sober. That's the only job I had. You see, I had to go to meetings the way I used, and that was all day long. Some people say, too, 90 meetings in 90 days. Well, if I sponsor somebody, I gotta tell them to do it the way I did it. I need 90 meetings in 30 days. People go, well, I don't want you to be my sponsor. Thank you very much. Seven months sober, I went to prison on those charges. Well, because at about four months sober, I got a deal in my head that I could fix it. Money always fixed things. So I came into some money, and I went to the, 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 one of the girls and I said, look, you know, here, what, what do you want, man? You know this, this, this. So I, I offered $10,000 and they gave my money to the police and I got arrested again. So I got charged with bribery of the court. So I had to plead no contest to the charges, which I didn't like very much. And I got sentenced to two years and four months in prison. 
Some of you may say, God, man, that was rough. Well, some people think I got punished. I like to look at it like I was rescued. Because what two years and four months did for me was gave me a time to learn how to live. You see, I took my big book and my 12 and 12 to prison with me. If you've got jail time to do here tonight, some of you newcomers, if you're here uh, because uh, the court sent you here, it's okay. Just keep coming back. And keep coming back when you get out. For two years and four months, I have a unique opportunity to study the program. And how can this program work in my life? I'm bright. I'm smart. I need to figure this thing out because I want to know how to live. For two years and four months, I became a student of my program, this program, these 12 steps, these promises are happening in my life. I celebrated my first AA birthday in prison. I celebrated my second AACA birthday in prison. I celebrated my third birthday in prison. Good meeting, too. I celebrated my fourth year at home. I celebrated my fifth year at home. And it's wonderful. Sobriety is profound. Sobriety is wonderful. I believe sobriety is about action. For me it is. Because you look at a guy who had a moral charge, who was a has-been football player, who has friends today, who makes a living today, and it didn't seem like that it was at all possible because of our society being so moral conscious. Today I know how to be successful, but I also know how to handle it. The sobriety has given me something that nobody else has ever given me. The 12 steps have given me something that no one else has ever given me, and it's something that's mine. My 12 steps are mine. The way I work them is mine. My sobriety is mine. It's the only honest thing I've ever done in my life. My sobriety is the only honest thing I've ever done. In other words, if, you, if you've been sober honestly, you've got to be proud where you live, and that's deep down. I'm grateful I'm sober. I'm not so grateful that I'm an alcoholic, though. I mean, deep down in my gut there, I, I, I don't like to be an alcoholic. I, I never intended to be. I don't think anybody here ever intended to be a dope addict. I, I don't remember pulling on my mother's apron and saying, Mother, you, you know what I want to be when I grow up, Mother? Or oh, what, son? An alcoholic? I think in sobriety, results are, are pretty important. I feel like for the last five years, I've walked around with a broom and a dustpan, cleaning up the wreckage of my past. 
Because I feel like if you don't clean up the wreckage, something's always going to be missing in your sobriety. You can't push it aside or forget about it. we got to work through it. We've got to recognize it. You see people in the rooms, man, who it never seems to get any better for them. They, they're, they're working through economic hardship, and they're not working. <laughs> that comes to me and say, oh, man, I'm having really some economic insecurity. Well, why? Oh, I'm not working. So. You see, because when we start getting sober, I believe, and we want to go for our, our goals or, or, or do things, it's okay. We don't have to be afraid to go back and be husbands. We don't have to be afraid to go back and be professors or construction workers or teachers or doctors or lawyers or whatever we are. We can't be afraid to go on back and get into the real world. See, there's life after the program. Relationships. I'm married. Sometimes it's tough in a relationship. It's not always easy. But I, my wife, I love my wife, and we're buddies and we're friends, but that don't mean we still can't have some problems in our relationship. My friend is in town. My sponsor, Jimmy Daniels. And I love this. Stand up, man, please. I love this. That's my sponsor, Jimmy Daniels. If, you, if you'd have told me uh, five years ago that I had Jimmy Dan for my sponsor, I'd have shot you in the head. <laughs> we went to Tijuana today and got grateful. <laughs> Sobriety is profound. If a guy like me, Thomas Henderson, can be clean and sober, anybody can. You gotta want it, you gotta want it every day. You see, the thing I've done in my program is I work step one every single day. 100%. You can't get a 95 on step one. Because if you clean, you've done it 100%. You can get C's and D's on those other steps, but you'll come around. I promise you one thing, if you work step one, 100%, that's the clean step, you won't use drugs or alcohol anymore. And if you want to get your life together, you'll go on and try to take some other steps. Because you can, as my friend says, you know, be, be you know, a year sober, unmarred by a single day of growth. Yeah, because even in my sobriety, man, I've been dry sometimes. Anybody ever been dry? You know, I'm kind of like a fire hazard, you know what I mean? I... <laughs> my sponsor, Jimmy Daniels, told me, you can't practice these principles in all your affairs, better change some of your affairs. I've got to tell you tonight, my sobriety is real, I'm real, 
I am truly grateful for Live at Five, Cocaine Anonymous, to have me come down here. It's always my pleasure because I do this kind of stuff for a living. Although I can't talk about program when I talk to high schools and colleges and, and different places I've speak around the country, but this is my way of giving it back. And I want to put in a plug for Cocaine Anonymous that in July 1st, 2nd, and 3rd in New York City at the Grand Hyatt on 42nd Street, Cocaine Anonymous World Convention, I'm going to be the Saturday night speaker. Hey, 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 that's if I make it. You know what I'm saying? You know, I believe we have to be optimistic in our sobriety. You know, because you, you'll talk to people in the program, they'll go, just one day at a time. But does that mean I can't have layaway, goddammit? I mean, can I put something in layaway, asshole? That's too pessimistic. I, I believe optimism comes along with good sobriety. I think we need to encourage optimistic sobriety. It has to be fun. Can't be that painful. I was at a meeting in Laguna, a speaker meeting. A guy took a 13-year case. You know, he stood up there, and I'm sitting there, and, you know, I got about, uh, about four months. I'm sitting there listening to this guy speak. I'm wanting to be the speaker, of course. And they're, they're like all of you out there right now. I, I know that you think I would love to be the speaker. Uh, it's just normal. But this guy was talking and getting his birthday cake, and, and he said, you know, this 13 years been real tough, and... Uh, I wanted to commit suicide and everything. I was sitting there thinking, God, when I get a 12, I'm, 12 years, I'm going to drink. <laughs> I ain't going to try to get that 13th year, man. <laughs> results. That's what you see with good sobriety is results. You see, I get results today because I'm responsible. I'm reliable. I have self-credibility, something you can't buy. I'm responsible today. Sobriety is profound. I really do love each and every one of you. I'm grateful you had me down here to talk. I'm glad I'm sober enough to talk. And I have my sponsor here tonight, so I wouldn't lie. <laughs> Try to be too profound. But we do see results in sobriety. And if we're not getting results in sobriety, we need to work on our program a little more. We need to encourage people into results. I love every one of you, and this has felt real good. And I feel real good right now, and I know God has done what he needs to do tonight. Thank you for letting me share.
gonna do about it? When I stopped living in the problem, began living in the answer, the problem went away. From that moment on, I have not one single compulsion to drink. And acceptance is the answer to all my problems today. When I am disturbed, it is because I find some person, place, thing, or situation, self fact of my life unacceptable to me. And I can find no serenity until I accept that person, place, thing, or situation as being exactly the way it's supposed to be at this moment. Nothing, absolutely nothing happens in God's world by mistake. Until I could accept my alcoholism, I could not stay sober. Unless I accept life completely on life's terms, I cannot be happy. I need to concentrate not so much on what needs to be changed in the world as on what needs to be changed in me and in my attitude. Shakespeare said, all the world, all the world's a stage and all the men and women murky, morally players. He forgot to mention that I was the chief critic, critic I always able to see the, the flow in every person, every situation, and I was glad to point it out because I knew you wanted perfection just as I did. A and acceptance have taught me that there is a bit of good in the worst of us and a bit of bad in the best of us, that we are all children of God and we each have the right to be here. When I complain about me or about you, I complain about God's handiwork. I am saying that I know better than God. For years, I was sure the worst thing that could happen to a nice guy like you is that I would turn out to be an alcoholic. Today, I find it's the best thing that's ever happened to me. It proves that I don't know what's good for me. And if I don't know what's good for me, then I don't know what's good for or bad for you or anyone. So better off, I don't give advice, don't figure I know what's best for me. I just accept my life as life's terms as it is today, especially my own. As it actually is before AA, I judge myself by my intentions while the world will judge me by my actions. Acceptance has been the answer to my meritable problems. It is as though AA has given me a new pair of glasses. Max and I have been married now for 35 years. Prior to our marriage, when she was a shy, strawny adolescent, I was able to see things in her that others couldn't necessarily see. Things like beauty, charm, gaiety, a gift of being easy to talk to, a sense of humor, many other fine qualities. It was as if I had, rather than a Midas touch, which turned everything to gold. A magnifying mind that magnified whatever it focused on. Over the years, as I thought about Max, her good qualities grew and grew. And we married, and all these qualities became more and more apparent to me, and we were happier and happier. But then as I drink more and more, the alcohol seems to affect my vision. Instead of continuing to see what was good about my wife, I began to see her defects. And the more I focused on my mind on her defects, the more they grew and multiplied. Every defect I pointed out to her became greater and greater. Each time I told her she was was a nothing, she receded, receded, receded a little more into no, nowhere. The more I drank, the more she whittled. Okay. <laughs> then one day in AA, I was told that my lenses were out of my glasses were backwards. Courage to change the serenity for a minute, not that I should change my marriage, but rather I should change my life, myself, and learn how to accept myself as she was. AA has given me a new pair of glasses. I can then again focus on my wife's good qualities and watch them grow, grow, and grow. I can do the same thing with an AA meeting. The more I focus my mind on its defects, late stars, long drunk logs, cigarettes, smoke, 
the worse the meeting becomes. But when I try to see what I can add to the meeting rather than what I can get out of it, and when I focus my mind on what's good about it rather than what's wrong with it, the meeting keeps getting better and better. When I focus on what's good today, I have a good day. And when I focus on what's bad, I have a bad day. If I focus on a problem, the problem increases. If I focus on the answer, the answer increases. Page 420, please. Perhaps the best thing of all for me is to remember that my community is inversely proportional to my expectations. The higher my expectations of Max and other people are, the lower is my serenity. I can watch my serenity level rise when I discard my expectations, but then my right try to move in, and they too can't force my serenity level down. I have to discard my rights as well as my expectations by asking myself, how important is it really? How important is it compared to my serenity, to my emotional sobriety? When I place more value on my serenity and sobriety than on anything else, I can maintain them at a higher level, at least for the time being. Sensibility is a key to my relationship with God today. I never just sit around and do nothing while I wait for him to tell me what to do. I rather I do whatever is in front of me that needs to be done and leave results up to him however it turns out. That's God's will for me. I must keep my magic magnifying mind on my acceptance and off my expectations for my serenity is directly proportional to the level of acceptance. When I remember this, I can see I've never had it so good. Thank God for it. Amen. Okay, now we turn to page 552, 552, please. Yes, sir. Yeah. He said, in effect, if you have a resentment you want to be free of, if you will pray for the person or the thing that you resent, you will be free. If you ask in prayer for everything you want for yourself to be given to them, you will be free. Ask for their health, their prosperity, their happiness, and you will be free. Even when you don't really want it for them and your prayers are only words and you don't mean it, go ahead and do it anyway. Do it every day for two weeks and you will find you have come to mean it and want it for them. And you will realize that where you used to feel bitterness and resentment and hatred, you now feel compassionate, understanding, and love. Awesome. Yeah. It worked for me then and it has worked for me many times since. And it will work for me every time I'm willing to work for you. Sometimes I have to ask for the willingness. But it too always comes, and because it works for me, it will work for all of us. As another, as another great man says, the only real freedom a human being can ever know is doing what you ought to do because you want to do it. This great experience has released me from the bondage of hatred and replaced it with, uh, with love. And it's just really another fermentation of the truth I know. I get everything I need from alcoholics anonymous. Everything I need, I get. And when I get what I need, I invariably find that it's just what I wanted all the time. Amen. Turn to page 100, please. 100. <clears throat> Both you and the new man must walk day by day in this path of spiritual progress. If you persist, remarkable things will happen. When we, look, when we look back, we realize that the things which came to us when we put ourselves in God's hands were better than anything we could have planned. Follow the dictates of a higher power and you will presently live in a new and wonderful world 
no matter what your present circumstance. Start right here. Turn to page 83, please. If we were in pain, thinking about this phase of our development, we will be amazed before we are halfway through. We are going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. We will not regret the past nor wish such thought. We will comprehend the words serenity and we will know we will know peace no matter how far down the scale we have gone. We will see how our experience can benefit others that that feeling of uselessness and self-pity will disappear. We will lose interest in self-esteem and gain interest in our fellows. Self-seeking will slip will slip away. Our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change. Fear of people and economic insecurity will leave us. We will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to, which used to baffle us. We will suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Are these are these extravagant promises we think not? They are being fulfilled among us sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. They will always materialize if we work for them. Amen. Page 85, please. It is easy to let up on the... We are here for trouble if we do so. Alcohol is a set of fault. We are not scared of alcoholism, but we have it the daily reprieve of the cognitive and the maintenance of the spiritual condition. Every day is a day when we must carry out that picture of God's will unto all of our activities. How may I best serve thee? Thy will, not mine, be done. <coughs> are these, are, these are the thoughts that must come with us, must go with us constantly. If we could exercise our willpower along the line, all we wish, we would probably use the will. Much has already been said about receiving strength, inspiration, and direction from him who has all knowledge and power. If we carefully follow directions, we have begun to sense the flow of his spirit into us. To some extent, we have become God-conscious. We have begun to develop this vital sixth sense. We, but we must go further, and that means more action. Page 43, please. Page what? Four three. Forty three. What is that? Four three. Forty three. Oh, the last one. Yeah, the very last part. Once, once more. Three, right? Yeah. Once more, the alcoholic at certain times has no effective mental defense against the first drink, except in a few rare cases. Neither he nor any other human being can provide such a defense. His defense must come from a higher power. Amen. Amen. Beautiful, beautiful, wonderful. Thank you very much, guys. And we'll see you yeah, tomorrow you, at brother. noon. Noon time tomorrow. We'll see you again. We'll see you again tomorrow. All right, guys. Give them heaven. Have a great time. Thank you. Bye. Bye, Rick. And bye, Ray. Bye-bye.